0: Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Hebrews 6 1. Amen. This is the uh, text from Sunday that I preach from. We're talking about foundations here in February. And I want to just deal with one foundational doctrine. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And This will we do if God permit. It's been only three years since I've spoken on the subject, the laying on of hands. Sometimes I wait longer before I address a particular theme again, but because this is in this foundational doctrinal passage, and uh, the writer of Hebrews gave it to us, Sunday I spoke about repentance from dead works, faith toward God, and the doctrine of baptisms. Tonight I want to teach on the laying on of hands. God bless you, you may be seated. Thank you for standing so very long. Amen. And by the way, I did get to go see Warren Paul and make it back for church tonight. Amen. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And if you read the Messenger article I wrote, you know, about a month ago now, um, foundations can get faulty. Anyone who Googles or looking for help around Atlanta, there's a lot of people who have foundation trouble. And Foundations can become faulty, so I want to strengthen our foundation so we can go on unto perfection. Of course, we know you never dismantle the foundation. It is always there. needs to always be strong. Jude said, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation, but it was needful for me to write unto you that you contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Not the faith as in believing God for a miracle, but our faith system, what we believe, what makes us the church of Jesus Christ. Jude said, you've got to go fight for what God gave us once for all at Calvary. We need to make sure that we don't lose that. If we want apostolic power to operate in our church, then we need to make sure that we go back and embrace apostolic principles. That's the foundation, the doctrine, and apostolic practices. If we want to see in 2019 what God did in the early church and throughout church history when there was a great revival, then we need to go back and embrace that. Now, if we don't care, that's another thing. But if we cared that people walk into this environment or sit down with you over coffee or go to lunch with you and we see their lives changed by the power of God, that the Lord destroys the yoke of sin, that they're set free from habits that are destroying their lives. If we see their families put back together again and we see them living the more abundant life on their way to eternal life, I say that's worth it. Amen? That's worth going after to me. Amen. So, laying on of hands is a foundational doctrine. And if you think about it, you know, I grew up in church and I I honestly don't remember ever hearing a Bible study or a sermon on the laying on of hands. I saw it practiced my whole life, but I never heard anyone, you know, break it down. I have here several times through the years, but mostly in leadership settings and uh, altar counselors. Training and places like that, not so much publicly in our church. So maybe February 18th or so, 2015. In the scope of other doctrines, you would think, now why why would the laying on of hands be in that foundation? When you put it right there with baptisms, you put it right there with eternal judgment and resurrection of the dead, why laying on of hands? It almost seems, you know, it's not a lightweight doctrine, but you understand in comparison to repentance, baptisms, faith toward God, you may not feel like it merits being there, but the Bible put it there, and there are no accidental verses or words in the Bible. Every jot and tittle, amen. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration, that the very words of the Bible are God-breed. When we talk about the laying on of hands, we're not just talking about someone coming to the altar and needing healing, and we lay hands on the sick. The Bible does teach that, right? Is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint them with oil, praying over them. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise them up. They've committed any sins, they will be forgiven them. We believe in praying for the sick. But there is more to the doctrine of laying on of hands than just that, but it does include that. This this deals with authority. It deals with power. It deals with the, the impartation of what God has put in you to other people. And it was the vehicle that trent that took this early church that they could go anywhere and tell anyone about Jesus Christ, and his power would be transferred to them by the Holy Ghost, by the preaching of the word, and often by the laying on of hands. Amen. Now impartation, I don't like things to just become little cliche words and they're just used lightly. We need impartation. We do need impartation. But we don't need to talk about it like we're throwing out nickels to the audience. You know, this is something very powerful and you don't need to be like the seven sons of Sceva in the Bible. I may mention them later in my notes who just took upon themselves to call over the name of Jesus like Paul did as if Jesus was a magic word. Jesus is a powerful name, amen? But it it has residence inside of people who walk with Him. The devil said to those seven sons of Sceva, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? I don't think we have your name down in the hell's directory as being very powerful. That demon-possessed man jumped all over them, beat them up, and they fled out of the house wounded and naked. So don't mess with the devil if you just want to play church, right? Amen. So anyway, the name of Jesus is very powerful. And we do need impartation in the church. It is an apostolic principle. It was a practice. And it is a, is a conveyance of the power of God. Amen. So we need this. Uh, you know, of, of things that happen in your life, And I want to just refer to a couple of experiences that I've shared before. When I was a teenager, about 16 years of age, I started really trying to walk with God. And I was at a youth camp, and there was a friend of mine there who's, uh, i I need to leave this very generic, he'd been through a real crisis in his family. I didn't really know at that time. And he was praying, but he was pretty controlled. And I just went behind him in the old Florida campgrounds tabernacle where we had youth camp. And I just laid my hands on his back. I thought, you know, this guy really needs a touch from the Lord, and he's not really doing very much. And when I put my hands on his back, I just broke and started weeping. And I I was thinking to myself, what in the world is going on? I wasn't feeling that. But when I put my hands on his back, I felt something coming out of him. And when I prayed for him, he broke down and started praying. So I thought, what is this that's going on with me, you know, laying my hands on this young man who's a friend? And uh, when I went to Bible college, I was a student leader, and the Lord began to deal with me about laying on of hands, and I started praying with people and seeing the Lord use me to minister to them, and it was kind of an astonishing thing, because I didn't really understand the principles behind laying on of hands. Brother Billy Cole was teaching at the Bible College when I was a student. He came back and taught later. And I said, Brother Cole, explain to me laying on of hands. I want to know more about laying on of hands. He said, you know, I was praying with the missionary one time, and he was interceding, and there was nothing I could do for him, so I just laid my hands on him and just prayed my strength into him. I thought, wow, that's interesting. And then uh, Bishop T.L. Craft, who I served for 10 years in various capacities, he told a story numerous times. This was one of those notable stories in the Jackson church. There was a young boy whose name was Jimbo Hood. And Jimbo was covered with warts. And I I knew this kid. He was in my youth group later. And Brother Craft said, I knelt down by Jimbo, and I pictured myself as a little boy covered in warts. And I just started praying for him with that kind of compassion. And that church, the history of that church, has that as a notable miracle, as I recall, and this happened before I went there, that overnight, every one of those warts disappeared. He was completely healed just like that. We believe in that. Everyone here believes in that. I learned in trying to understand this doctrine that faith works by love. It is not just you wanting to be big and bad for Jesus, seeing signs and wonders, watching devils flee, watching the dead raise and blinded eyes open. But the gifts of the Spirit, the power of God, they operate by love. The Bible said that Jesus was moved on compassion and He healed people. The two blind men of Matthew 20, cried out to Him. They said, have mercy on us. And the Bible said in Matthew 20, 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. So I believe that the laying on of hands, when it comes to miracles and healing, it operates by compassion, it operates by love, and there are other uses as we'll get into this along the way. Jesus actually laid hands on a leprous man, Mark chapter 1, and it would have been against the Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. But Jesus did, and the leprosy went out of him. All the defilement that was in that man could not defile the purity and holiness of Jesus, but the holiness and purity of Jesus drove the leprosy out of that man. Now... Faith works by love, by compassion. But we also know in the power of prayer that God created prayer for us to communicate with Him. And we pray for daily needs. We pray for spiritual direction. We pray for spiritual breakthrough. We also believe in praying in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 6.18 talks about prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching therein with all perseverance and supplication with all saints. And the reason I'm kind of covering this prayer, I'm going to get to the heart of what I want to say, but you cannot just mechanically operate supernatural giftings and truth. There has to be a faith, a spiritual depth in us if God is going to use us. So we need to be people of prayer who know how to pray in the spirit, and get in touch with God until we pray through, as the old timer said, and touch God. Paul said in Romans 7 that the Spirit knows, right? And the Spirit makes intercession for, for, with us for, with, for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So sometimes we get in a place of prayer where we're not operating in understanding, human understanding, but we're operating by the power of the Holy Ghost. And I found that often when I'm praying with a person that there's a dimension of prayer that kind of I connect with them and that dimension of prayer where it's not just seeing how many people I can touch and pray for if I'm really ministering to somebody there needs to be a depth of prayer that is a spiritual depth of prayer that moves in and makes a difference for that person where God uses you to minister to them. When you need something from God, you know, what has to happen? If a person comes to the altar or wherever they are, they don't have to come to an altar, and they want to find God. We know by Hebrews 6 that the very first thing they need to do is repent of their sins, repentance from dead works. And when they repent of their sins, then it frees the power of God to, be, to begin to operate in them. But repentance is what I would visualize, and I want to make this visual is that they are emptying themselves of whatever is in them that is not like God. To me, it's, I know it's kind of simplistic, but if this is me before Christ, and that's sin, and that's everything that is not like Jesus, that's got to come out of me so I can make my vessel, my life, empty and ready to receive what God would pour into me. Does that doesn't make sense? You've got to pour it out of you. You've got to empty yourself of sin, empty yourself of self-will. And if you're coming to God for the very first time, the Lord's not going to come into a vessel, a life, that is not repented of their sins. So we shouldn't ever rush a person through a p- repentance. Amen? Amen? However long it takes to repent. Many people repent before they got to our altar. They repented at home. They repented during the sermon they came down and in just a few moments they made a change of heart, mind, and life direction. So we don't need to have a timer to see how long it repents, how long it takes to repent. But you can sense when a person has really emptied themselves and there's kind of a, a change in them, a relief that comes over them. Now I know this is a rather subjective point here about emptying yourself and when does it happen and it's probably more art than science although the principle is true about repentance. And then, when a person is ready to receive something from God, and by the way, when you need a breakthrough in your life, I think this same process works. You've got to empty yourself and open up to God. You come for healing, make yourself in a place where God can touch you, and then after you have emptied yourself of whatever is in you that is not like God, then begin to worship the Lord and let God pour himself into you. When we're praying with someone to receive the Holy Ghost, we tell them to repent. Sometimes we say, now stop repenting. You've you've asked the Lord to forgive you, and He's promised He would, but if you stay in repentance mode, you're not going to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost because the, the Holy Ghost is a gift that is received by faith, and generally people are worshiping God and thanking Him for the Holy Ghost when they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They go beyond the intellectual experience of prayer and they let the Spirit of God come over them. And sometimes phrases may come to their mind or to their mouth and as they begin to boldly speak them out, the Spirit gives them the utterance, the ability to speak. That's why never ever, I know you know this, we don't ever teach anyone to speak in tongues. We don't tell them to say this certain phrase. I know hallelujah is a high word of praise but I'm really not trying to get anybody to say hallelujah so fast that it turns into tongues. That is not the Holy Ghost. I mean, the Holy Ghost is speaking with other tongues. Whether you are saying, glory to God, I love you, Jesus, I give my life to you. But when you begin to open your heart to God, then the Lord will pour himself into you. You you prepare your heart for the Lord, and the Lord will come in. Amen. I love the song. Maybe twenty-five. Lift up your head, O you gates, O you gates, and be ye lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. It's a song of procession. They're making their way to worship God, and they see the gates of the city, and they look too small for a God this big. So they say, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be ye lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. I believe with all my heart that if we personally and we as a church corporately, if we will prepare our hearts for the Lord, if we'll get the foundation right, if we'll make room for God in our hearts and lives, then He will come in, the King of glory. The King of glory will come in. Amen. So the reason I'm saying that if I understand what needs to happen, that it's a transaction between a person and God, and I know that they need to empty themselves, and they need to let God fill them up, or they need to receive something from the Lord, then I want to cooperate with that process. That's why we say often that you need to meet them at the point of their need, begin where they are. And, and unless it's somebody's really breaking through, I may stop and ask them, You know, is there something I can pray with you about? And pray with them about that. You need to let them have an opportunity to empty themselves. And then when you sense that spiritually that that glass is kind of empty and you see that relief and that change, then you can begin to encourage them to receive what God has for them. Whether it is a sinner needing salvation or a saint needing a renewing of the Holy Ghost or a healing. And I want to show you how I believe that the laying on of hands is is something God uses to help, but the laying on of hands is even bigger, a lot bigger, than even that particular usage of the laying on of hands. Uh, When Brother uh, Herring was here preaching on January 20th, he was preaching about special miracles, you know, and we anointed cloths and simped them with people, and it was an amazing day. But uh, he mentioned Acts 19, 11, and 12, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, Jesus said, if you say to this sycamine tree of this mountain, the sycamine tree be plucked up by the roots and cast into the sea, so you're going to speak by faith, something that needs to get away from where it is and go somewhere else. If you have faith and you say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast to the sea and not doubt in your heart. So Jesus practiced this idea of prayer that you speak to something that it leaves where it is and it goes somewhere else. The demons in the man called Legion said, don't send us into the pit. Would you send us into the pigs? If we're going out of him, we've got to go somewhere. So would you let us go there? And Jesus sent him into the swine. They ran over the cliff and drowned themselves, a couple thousand pigs. That was a lot of devils in a man. So I've been thinking about this because I, I have a frame of reference that if diseases departed from them, those diseases are in people, Right? And I don't believe there's there could be spiritual, but I'm not referring to that right now. There could be a spirit of affliction in the Bible. There were people that had a devil in them, and it manifested itself with sickness. I'm not talking about that right now. But sickness is in our body. And the Bible said that these special miracles were done by Paul. I'm helping us tonight. Uh, by the way, uh, another night we'll talk about Christians at work, balancing your checkbook, submitting to your husband, loving your wife, but tonight, I want to arm you and equip you to be powerful for God. Amen. I want to try to help you understand how God works so that you can cooperate with what He does. The more you understand what's going on with a person and what God has in mind, the more you can be a part of that. And this, by the way, is not for just you know, reverends or special people. Jesus said believers will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Get ahead of myself a little bit on that. Diseases departed from them. There was a disease in them, but when they were prayed for, the disease departed from them. So when I believe, you know, sometimes if I'm praying for cancer, and I, I don't, I'm not a miracle worker, Jesus is, but I see it like that, that fig tree that Jesus cursed, or the sycamine tree he talked about, that you curse it. Something that's foreign in your body that doesn't need to be there, and we want to pray that it would die, that the cancer would die. Amen? And that it would go out from them. I'm reading again Acts 19, 12, the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. There were people that were demon-possessed, and they were delivered by the power of God. Amen. We want to see people empty themselves of their sins. We want to see people that may have weights and the sin that does so easily beset that are called apostolic people. We want to empty ourselves of everything that is not like Jesus Christ so He can fill us up with everything that is like Him. Amen. We want to see it happen in us. Now, let's talk about this doctrine. Uh, Media has Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, but I want you to just go to verse 2. I just want you to see the phrase to know that it is a doctrine of laying on of hands and that I need to get on with my message tonight. A doctrine is a fundamental teaching. This is a foundational teaching. So while spiritual gifts can be imparted by the laying on of hands, according to the Bible... Laying on of hands is not a gift, it's a doctrine. And when Jesus said believers will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, He didn't say believers that have special giftings. So we have the power of God working in us. You know, several years ago I've talked about, and more than once, you know, my dad, a carpenter, rough calloused hands, praying for me as a little boy, and God miraculously healing me. My dad was not a preacher, he was a spiritual man, but he was a regular guy. He was, you know, the time I talked about Elijah, he was, he was a guy like me. He was a man of like passions like we are. He wasn't, you know, just some supernatural. He was super powerful, right? But the Bible calls him a man of like passions. He's just a person. And every man of God is a man of God. Every woman of God, woman of the Spirit, is still a woman, a human being that God chooses to use. Amen. So we don't need to look at the laying on of hands as if it's for some, you know, narrow group in the church, some super spiritual, you know, elite, like, you know, this is not the army ranger's gift. This is the foot soldier's gift. This is not for just the Navy SEALs. This is for everybody who's enlisted in the Lord's army. And it it shouldn't be something we don't understand. So let's go back and understand a little bit of how it was used in the Bible and how it can be used by us in the church. Leviticus 16 and 20. This is the Day of Atonement. It is when Aaron is going to make an atonement for the entire nation of Israel. He's going to make an atonement for himself first because if you are used by God... You ought to start with getting right with God yourself. That's always a good place to start, right? Before you get up and try to tell other people what to do, you need to practice what you preach and you need to have an altar in your own life. Amen. Leviticus 16.20 And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now I'll break this down just a little bit and give it context. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins putting them on the head of the goat and he shall and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So, this is that day of atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month. Aaron atones for himself and all of Israel. They're making reconciliation, and the word atone means to cover. It is at one minute, is the way it's really easy to remember that I'm reaching to God and reaching to man, and I'm bringing them together. It's at one minute, it's covering sins. And it's making peace with God. And every year, once a year, this would happen. And the part of the ceremony that I want you to kind of see is there were two goats. One of those goats was called the Lord's. And it was sacrificed. His blood was shed. Lots were cast before this happened. And this second goat is called the scapegoat. Now let me go ahead and kind of apply this just a little bit in typology that Jesus Christ was both of these goats. He was the lamb slain. He was that one who died, shed his blood. I know Leviticus 16, it's a goat. And he takes away our sins by his blood. But the Bible said this live goat bears our sins and he goes into a wilderness not in heaven. Anybody grow up on the song, He Took My Sins Away? There's a goat sacrificed And there's a goat that bears the sins of Israel into a land not inhabited. He takes them, the Bible said he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's buried them in the depths of the sea. He's put them behind his back. Pretty powerful imagery of what happens to our sins. So this scapegoat is the one that I want to focus on today. Because the Bible said in verse 21, Leviticus 16, 21 Aaron's going to lay both his hands on the head of this goat. And while he does, he's going to start confessing the iniquities of the children of Israel over this goat, all of their transgressions and their sins. So he's going to put them symbolically and spiritually, not literally, it would crush the poor little guy, you know. He's going to put them on the head of the goat. So I want you to understand this first thing that happens with this goat is when he lays his hands on the goat, that that goat symbolically becomes Israel. He now has this principle of identification that that goat, God's going to accept that goat to bear the sins of Israel so it symbolically becomes Israel. So there is identification. And then Aaron confesses the sins of Israel over that goat And the Bible said he puts them on the goat. So now there's an impartation or a transfer of those sins onto the head of the goat. So um, could you see how this is happening? We're going to lay hands on this goat. There's an identification that takes place. And then there's a transfer or an impartation. Identification, impartation is probably easier to remember. And then... That goat is led away by the hand of a fit man, somebody strong enough, out into the middle of nowhere, and he is let go to wander around and never come back again. And he's going to bear all the sins of Israel on his head. So when you look back to this original story the laying on of hands of how there is this identification and impartation... I believe, and I'll give you some other scriptures of other uses for the laying on of hands. But while I'm here, let me just talk about this: that when when you pray for people, I think what happened when I was 16 years old, and I laid my hands on the back of a young man named Mike. I didn't tell you his name earlier in the story, and I'll just leave it like that. That I felt, I think that I identified with whatever was going on in his life, and I found out later what it was, and it was it was horrific. Not that he had done, but something that had happened in his family, and it was a tragedy. And I said something. I wasn't there with a little card that said, put your hands on his back and identification. I didn't have any idea about any of this, but I felt that before. I felt that since then when I pray for someone. And at this point, when you're praying for a person, you're not taking authority over them. They're just trying to connect with what's going on in their life. This might not happen every time you pray with a person, but for Israel, they identified. And then, remember I told you how there's this emptying? You know, and I think when I'm praying with a person, and again, I'm not going to go, I can prove these principles, how this all happens in real life when you're praying with someone, You know, I don't know that I want to go to a court of law and try to argue the glass of water, you know, with anyone or how I feel when I'm praying with someone. But I feel like I'm identifying with this pouring out, this emptying process. And I'm feeling compassionate toward whatever's going on in their life. You know, we live in a really broken world. There's a lot of people that are hurting deeply. And when we pray for them, I believe the Lord can give us compassion to feel what they feel. We may not know the details. We may not have all the information and we don't need it. And probably most of the time we shouldn't ask. But I believe that's what happens. And then when there's prayer and they kind of empty themselves and you feel that relief on them, then I begin to feel faith. And I start encouraging them to allow the Lord to minister to them. And and I begin to pray words of faith. And, And then... I may lay my hands on their head, and nowadays, most of the time, I ask for permission. If it's a, somebody in the church, and we have you come up for prayer, it's implied, right? You know, we're apostolic. We understand the laying on of hands. But when it's a person that doesn't know us, you know, I usually ask for permission. Is it all right if I lay my hands on your head? When I lay my hand on their head, I don't think it's just a point of contact. I understand human touch and how powerful that is. That's not what I'm talking about here. It is a point of faith, but it's more than just a point of faith. It is a process that God ordained in His Word that when we lay hands on people, that God will use the laying on of hands and the power of the name of Jesus to impart into them something very powerful and life-changing. It may be the Holy Ghost. It may be healing. It may be deliverance. But I believe God uses us And that process to identify with that human emptying and to impart with that spiritual transfer into their lives. The laying on of hands. It is a doctrine of the New Testament and the writer of Hebrews said it is a foundational doctrine. It fits right there with repentance, faith, baptisms, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Stuck right in the middle of that and think about, just think about this for a moment how little is this talked about in the church world? How little is it understood and how little is it practiced? But if we're going to build on the foundation, we've got to understand that foundation and we've got to cooperate with how God works in the lives of people. So now let me take you from that specific example of praying for people, you know, for whatever that may be. And I just want to quickly walk you through And I don't have time to give you all the references, but I just want to tell you how laying on of hands was used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, for blessing Isaac to Jacob and Esau, Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. He laid his hands on them. Remember, he crossed his hands. He knew what he was doing. Joseph said, wait, 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 wait. That's not the older. He said, yeah, I know. That's a pretty awesome story, by the way. Anyway... It was used in praying over a sacrifice uh, when an ordinary Israelite would, or, or, would pray or offer a sacrifice, Leviticus 1 and 4. and Leviticus 3, Leviticus, uh, several verses there, Leviticus 4, Numbers 8 and 12, when they were offering a sacrifices, they would lay their hands on those sacrifices. This is, this is the sacrifice that I am bringing. And I am now you know, asking God to let this sacrifice that I am giving to Him be a substitute for me, I'm identifying with that. I mentioned atoning, which is the Leviticus 16, and I would encourage you to go back and read Leviticus 16 and read Aaron laying his head, hands on the goat and putting those sins on the goat and the goat taking those sins away. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, laying on of hands was used for ordaining. The Israelites, and I just listened to this today, Um listening to my Bible, where the Israelites laid their hands upon the Levites, ordaining them into ministry. So this wasn't like a top-down laying on of hands. This was a submitted laying on of hands that we're going to allow these Levites to represent us to God. In Numbers 27, Moses ordained Joshua as leadership. And I want to show you this verse, Numbers 27, 18. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hand upon him. So this we see later in the New Testament when Paul lays his hand on Timothy, putting him in the ministry, right? But here's Moses, and this is a generational transfer from Moses to Joshua. It is the outgoing leader. He will die, and he's praying over his predecessor, his successor rather, not his predecessor, that would be Moses, his successor, lay thine hand upon him and set it before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and give a charge in their sight and thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him. Now, I know this is like, how does that happen? I don't know. I don't write the Bible, I just preach it. He says, Moses, when you lay your hand on Joshua... There's not going to be anybody like Moses ever, ever, till Jesus, right? And the Bible says that. But he puts his hands on Joshua, and some of the honor of Moses passes into Joshua, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel, even all the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Later, in Deuteronomy 34 and 9, I just want to show you the effect of it, so we're jumping ahead. Deuteronomy 34.9 And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands upon him and the children of Israel hearkened unto him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. When we ordain someone into ministry as a Georgia district or we believe that we're sending someone like Paul and Barnabas on a missionary trip we believe that we pray over them and that something happens. It is not symbolic. It is spiritual. When you lay hands on people, and I know you're thinking lay hands on no man suddenly. We'll get to that. Because that's important. But it's really not about praying for the sick, really. In the Old Testament, they prayed for someone to kind of solemnize a testimony before they were stoned to death to verify that they were sin. In the New Testament, laying on of hands was used for ordaining Timothy into the presbytery. Paul said, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. 1 Timothy 4.14, if you're taking notes. I'm sorry I don't have that on the screen. 1 Timothy 4.14. Here's this young guy, Timothy. His father's a Greek, his mother's a Jewess, his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, Our prayerful ladies, Timothy, young Timothy, is going to go into the ministry. We don't know when it happened. We don't have that story. But Paul said the elders, the presbytery laid their hands on you, and when they did, something happened in you. Amen. Paul later told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Paul said, I laid my hands on you, and when I did, something happened. Now, back in the days before I was born, believe it or not, there's was what was called the latter rain. Some people mock it calling it the latter splatter. Back in the days of the latter rain, there was a lot of, abuse, a lot of abuses of the gifts of the Spirit. People were prophesying wild things. Marry so-and-so, you know, I mean, divorce so-and-so, marry them, and telling the will of God. I like when Agabus comes and prophesies over Paul, which Agabus, by the way, is a New Testament prophet, and Paul and Barnabas are prophets and teachers, uh, so they're New Testament apostles and prophets. But anyway, Agabus prophesies over Paul, and he says the man who owns this girdle, this belt, is going to be bound in Jerusalem. So they started weeping and were all upset. And Paul said, What mean you to weep and break my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound in Jerusalem, but to die there. So Agabus prophesied the truth, but it didn't change the will of God for Paul. It gave information about what would happen there. So the gifts of the Spirit are very powerful, but they are not equal to the Word of God. They are not equal to godly counsel. And the will of God will never violate the word of God ever, ever, ever. So, and the gifts of God will never violate the word of God. So, back in those days, there were a lot of people that were just, they thought that, you know, you could just bring your little pocketbook or your little bag of gifts and you could just arbitrarily, you know, just kind of give them out. I preached here about a gifted church. I believe when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. He gifted his church. Amen? And I was kind of throwing gifts down the aisle and hit somebody when I was preaching about that here. A little gold coin, right? It's a gifted church, and we should believe in this. Amen? Moses, the Holy Ghost. I'm, I'm reluctant always to tell stories because... You know, you make it sound like every time you pray for someone that you're doing what happened at a particular time. And God has used me for, for miracles, like notable miracles, a goiter disappearing and a leg growing and things like that that are way out there, like special miracles. But that's not what my normal prayer is. But I was praying. Uh, every, everybody knows Scott Sistrunk, who just preached here. And he grew up in the Jackson church. And one day we were all in the prayer room praying. And there was a mighty move of the Holy Ghost. And I went over. He's a young man, you know, maybe seven years younger than me or eight. And uh, was a junior higher than he grew up. And I was not his youth pastor at that time. David Reaver was his youth pastor. And I just started praying over Brother Scott Sistrunk. And I don't know. I can't explain it. I couldn't prove it. But I felt like God imparted something in that moment. And I felt that happen before. But it was so notable to me. That we talked about it later that something really powerful in the Holy Ghost happened. It wasn't a gift that I just chose or a gift that I said I think today I'm going to give somebody a gift but it does happen and we should believe it and we should understand that it is not a peripheral gift it is a fundamental doctrine and we should ask God to use us. Amen? When the seven we. Some people call them deacons, but the seven men who are set up to uh, wait tables and distribute benevolence money in Acts chapter 6, they you know, look out among you, seven men full of wisdom, Holy Ghost, honest report. And they said, we will lay our hands on them. They, they, they laid their hands on them. They didn't say they would, but they prayed and they laid their hands on them. This was kind of like saying, we want you to be in charge. We want you to be on the benevolence committee. But we need you to be full of the Holy Ghost." We need you to be honest. That's a good thing if you're going to handle money. And we need you to have wisdom. But after you meet these qualifications and the congregation has kind of said, here's these seven men, bring them to the apostles. The apostles said, now we're going to lay our hands on them and we're going to delegate spiritual authority to them to do this job. That's pretty powerful if you think about how the early church operated that even something like that that doesn't seem spiritual in and of itself was done with the laying on of hands with with kind of ordaining them into that area of ministry in in that church in Jerusalem. Amen. Mark 16, 18. The words of Jesus about what will happen with believers. They shall take up serpents. Paul did on accident. If you're a guest here tonight, we don't do that on purpose. But when Paul did that on accident, no pain, shook him off in the fire. So it did happen. Drink any deadly thing, we don't tempt God. There's plenty of scripture for that. But then they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Jesus wants his people to know that this is going to be a powerful church. It's going to be a powerful church. This is like an off-road church. We're going to go places where there are snakes. People are trying to kill you with deadly things. There's going to be sick people, demon-possessed people. But guess what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. I'm sending my church like lambs among wolves. but I'm sending you out there empowered, empowered with the Holy Ghost. So that special miracles can happen through your life. Amen. Would you please stand? In the book of Acts, there are examples of people being prayed for to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip goes down to Samaria, he preaches Christ to them, they are baptized, there are miracles, there is great joy in the city, but the Bible said none of them had received the gift of the Holy Ghost. As yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they said, we're down here in Samaria. We're trying to have a revival. People are believing. There's miracles. They've gotten baptized. But no one has received the Holy Ghost. So they sent back to Jerusalem and they said, we need some powerful people down here. So they sent them Peter and John who when they had come down, they laid their hands on them, and when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Ghost. Now I believe that that was because it was opening a brand new people group of Samaritans to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's how God did that. Acts 10, no one laid their hands on the Gentiles, but Peter baptized them. In Acts chapter 19, they laid their hands on them, and they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Now, they've got this verse queued up, verse, 1 Timothy 5.22. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. When you study the context of this and other translations of this, I think there's an application that we don't just run around laying hands on people like that. But the real intent of that verse is before you put someone into a place of authority, make sure you know who they are, you know, know them that labor among you, and don't be too quick to lay your hands on somebody and sanction them in a place of ministry. But don't lay hands on on no man suddenly. I believe that you put people in authority who have proven themselves faithful, and they are trusted. So that's what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about in the altar that, you know, you shouldn't, you know, have a sudden movement. You know, don't do it too fast. It has nothing to do with what that verse is talking about. Now, that's the fastest hand layer owner at Atlanta West, you know. and Slow down, son. You're too quick. That's not what that means. But I do think that the principle is application that... We, we want to operate in the Holy Ghost. And like Paul, who walked with God, when we pray with people, we want something to happen. We're not just wanting God to use us because we could go home and tell our grandkids how God used us. Faith operates by love. And it's faith that works in us to pray for people. And we should expect God to use us. And when He does, we should let God use us. Now, generally in the altar, we have ministers and elders and altar counselors. And normally, we, you know, our ladies pray with ladies and men pray with men. And if I'm praying for a lady, I lay my hand on her head only. Typically, that's what I do. And we believe in authority and we believe in respecting people. And we know that when we lay our hands on a person, we may get excited. But there is really no Holy Ghost in, in shaking someone and giving them a chiropractic adjustment in the altar. That may be because you're excited, but that's not, that doesn't do anything. Sometimes that's us trying to fabricate something that's not really there. I did see at the Georgia campground one time, somebody was praying, they asked what was wrong, and they had neck trouble, and the person got down there, and I mean, I watched them pop their neck, and I just, oh, he looked at me and said, I'm a chiropractor. I'm like, no, no, that's not what we're trying to do here in the altar. We're praying for the sick. That was a moment to remember. I hope they were better. I don't know. But that's not what we do. I've asked the Lord, you know, tonight is somewhat academic. But I don't want this to just be academic. I want God to use us. If you'd like for the Lord to use you and you have a few moments. If you need to go, I understand really early work mornings. But if you have a few moments, why don't you gather at the altar and let's ask the Lord to use us in a mighty way that God would anoint us with the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. You can just come praying. Let your hunger for God reach out to Him. Amen.